910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. At Proverbs 910 Ministries, we are dedicated to taking out the trash of false teaching and replacing it with biblical truth. Welcome back. We are at the halfway point of our eight-part series we've titled Sin-Filled Nation, and we've been looking at the book of Judges. While we're specifically looking at the Israelites and their apostasy, there's a lot we can learn from this sometimes pretty twisted book, Chris. (laughs) This is such a twisted book. It's hard to believe it's in the Bible. (laughs) It is. I had someone just say that to me. Why is it in the Bible? (laughs) Yeah. This week, we're going to look at the syncretists. You may have never heard of Bill Johnson, but chances are you've heard of Bethel Music. This group comes out of Bethel Church in Redding, California, where Bill Johnson is the lead pastor. Bill Johnson is a fifth-generation pastor. Growing up, that's not what he wanted to be. He wanted to be a professional baseball player. According to his biographer, and I'm going to quote here, God had different plans and used an evangelist named Mario Murillo to get Bill's attention. Murillo was a man whose ministry was born in the drug-obsessed, occult-saturated atmosphere in the epicenter of the violent student revolution in Berkeley, California. Through Murillo's persuasive gospel messages and absolute abandonment to Christ mixed with raw healing, the Holy Spirit conquered Bill's heart. Today, he's a fifth-generation pastor on his dad's side and a fourth-generation pastor on his mom's side, end quote. Well, that sounds like a pretty solid start in pastoring. It sure does. But that's not how things have turned out. Bill Johnson and Bethel Church have gone off the rails big time theologically. And while he still claims Jesus Christ is his savior, his word of faith ministry has very little connection with Bible-based Christianity. Bill Johnson spends more time spouting his own ideas, his own visions, and downloads, he claims, he gets from God than he ever does quoting scripture. Bethel Church is a mega church, and Bill Johnson has influenced millions of people throughout the world with this false teaching. Bill Johnson's a heretic. I mean, he really is. He is for sure. And he's also a syncretist. If you remember, we defined syncretism as mixing of two belief systems or religions. For example, orthodoxy and paganism. When the Bible talks about the sin of idol worship among the Israelites, it's referring to syncretism. The Israelites believed in Yahweh, but they also believed in the pagan gods, and they practiced pagan rituals. This might sound strange and maybe even a little bit crazy to us, but before we go judging, know that syncretism is rampant in Christian society today. Yes, it is. It really is interfaith marriages, interfaith ceremonies. And these are two things that everyone considered wonderful, but it's syncretism. There's many Bible-believing Christians that profess their allegiance to Jesus and faith in God while they carry good luck charms or look for signs that speak to them. They go to spiritual websites to get a word for their life, or they gullibly accept false and sometimes dangerous teaching without ever verifying it against the word of God. Many don't even realize they're doing it. Chris, how many Christians do we know that go to yoga classes and not just the exercise yoga classes, but one steeped in Eastern mysticism? It's such a problem. We did a whole podcast episode on it during our Real Truth About Real Stuff series. That's right. So getting back to the Israelites, 
the end of chapter eight and all of chapter nine are a little bit different from the normal cycle of judges that we've seen so far. God doesn't set an outside enemy against the Israelites because of their syncretism. He doesn't need to. This time, the enemy or the enemies come from within. He also doesn't appoint a judge to deliver Israel this time. But instead, he raises up a prophet to give them a warning. This narrative, like the story of Bill Johnson, is a good reminder to us that sometimes the biggest threat is from within the church. That's right. In the last episode, we talked about Gideon. Judges 8, 30 to 32 tells of Gideon's death. It says, now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called him Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah of the Abizrite. Okay, let's get some perspective here. Gideon has a lot of wives, so mm -hmm. many that he has 70 sons, and the law of probability would say he had to have a lot of daughters in there, too. Yes. In ancient times, when they practiced polygamy, a wife meant a wife or a woman of noble birth. A concubine, on the other hand, was a woman who wasn't of noble birth. Gideon had at least one of them too, and this concubine gave him a son who he names Abimelech. Understand that the sons of a concubine do not have the same standing as the son of a wife, and that's important for this narrative. It is. The name Abimelech means my father is the king. It's interesting that when the Israelites wanted to make Gideon a king, he refused, saying, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Pretty noble words. Yes. However, look how he lived the rest of his life. He takes many wives and concubines. He has a slew of kids. And obviously, the generosity of his countrymen, if you remember, he wanted the earrings from their plunder that they took from the Midianites, has allowed him to live in luxury and comfort for the rest of his life. Must have been a lot of earrings to support all those wives, <laughs> concubines, and kids. So out of 70 sons whose mothers are of noble birth, Gideon names the one who isn't a name that means my father is the king. We don't know why Abimelech received this prestigious name out of all Gideon's sons. As the son of a concubine, he wouldn't even have been in line to inherit anything. And it's ironic that Gideon said neither he nor his son would rule over Israel yet through his name, Gideon pretty much sets Abimelech up to do just that. Chris, before we get into Abimelech's story, we need to pause and, and say some things here. Gideon and some others in the Bible, like David and Solomon, all saw having many wives and concubines as a sign of power. First Chronicles 3 lists all of David's wives and children. It lists some of King Solomon's, but he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. So there wasn't space to list all his wives and kids. <laughs> I think so. Uh, it would be like the ESV study Bible. <laughs> These guys thought it was their due to have a large harem, though, because that's what the culture dictated. God, though, says something quite different in Deuteronomy 17, 17 to 19. In talking about the law governing, governing kings, God says, And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away nor shall he acquire for himself excess silver or gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him. And he shall read it in all the days of his life. And he shall learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. 
And while having many wives and concubines wouldn't be considered syncretism, it's certainly sin. David, Solomon, and Gideon all considered heroes of the Bible. And for sure, God did great things through all of them. They were still sinful people. They were more concerned with how they looked to the world than how they looked to God. They weren't just in the world in the case of wives and concubines. They were of the world. This is why we don't ever put anyone from the Bible except Jesus on a pedestal because we find all those pedestals are made of clay. Absolutely. You know, it's easy to see blatant pagan practices. Every April, the Festival of Songgrand is celebrated in cities all across the U.S., including Los Angeles and Homestead, Florida. It's a three-day pagan New Year celebration. Songgrand means astrological passage, meaning transformation or change. It's a Buddhist or Hindu harvest festival that started in India, but it's become global. Foods offered to Buddhist monks as a way to pay reverence and tribute to ancestors and water is poured over the Buddhist statues to allow purification and washing away of one's sins and bad luck. In the U.S., you'll see young people celebrating by dousing each other with water guns as a symbol of being purified. The rules of this three-day celebration are work as little as possible, avoid spending money, don't hurt other people or animals, and don't tell lies. Now, if any of us as Christians were to stumble onto this celebration, we would surely feel really uneasy and want to get away as quickly as possible. I would hope so, (laughs) because things like Songgrin are blatantly anti-Christian, so you should know better. But the problem with syncretism is that sometimes it creeps in without us knowing. Now, there's nothing wrong with secular holidays. We celebrate plenty of those kind of holidays. Mm -hmm. One's coming up, Valentine's Day, Independence Day, Memorial Day, Labor Day, President's Day, Father's Day, Mother's Day. And we don't have any spiritual expectations of those days. In fact, sometimes we tack spiritual meaning on them by taking, you know, by thanking God for bringing love into our lives for men and women who lay down their lives or for our fathers and mothers. And there's nothing wrong with that. No, there isn't. The problem arises when secular or pagan rituals are aligned with or replace godly things. Christmas and Easter are examples of this. Syncretism is when we combine the secular and pagan with the spiritual and godly. Telling children that Santa knows all and sees all is heresy. Yes. Putting up a picture of the Easter bunny with a basket of eggs at the foot of the cross That's your favorite. Oh, I hate that. (laughs) I know you do. That's why I said that's your favorite. So what are we telling our children about the reason we celebrate Christmas and Easter? In our hearts, what are we celebrating on those days? Are the secular things of Christmas and Easter taking over the actual meaning of these days, at least in our heart? Hallmark has been huge in syncretizing Christmas. And I know we're going to get flack for this. Of course. They're Christmas movies. While you might think they're all warm and cozy, they're actually really anti-Christian. The plot sometimes inserts Santa Claus as God who's able to perform miracles and who knows all. And their main theme of the magic of Christmas, it's never about the birth of Christ. Instead, it's about finding the perfect mate, getting the perfect job, or bringing families together. Yeah, and the reason that we're picking on Hallmark's Christmas movies and not their regular ones is there's no spiritual expectations with the other ones. But There should be definitely something in the movie about Christmas, if it's a Christmas movie. There should be something spiritual there. More than something spiritual, there should be something Christian there. 
the goal of this is not to make us feel guilty. The goal is for us to be aware of syncretism all around us and to put a guard so that we're on guard, not to fall into it. You can't change what you don't acknowledge. And the truth is that syncretism is more dangerous to our walk with God than blatant paganism will ever be because it seeps in without us being aware. That's the point. Revelation 22, 18 to 19 gives us a warning. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Pretty clear. Pretty clear. Okay, one last thought, and then we promise to get on with the story of Abimelech. While Gideon, David, and Solomon did exterior things to show their importance and their due as kings and rulers, the one true king, Jesus, who had every right to show his power, never mm -hmm. did anything like this, even though it was completely his due. These other guys elevated themselves. Jesus humbled himself. Yeah, these guys wanted everyone to see that they were powerful. Jesus only concerned himself with what God saw. As Mark 10, 45 says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is one of the main reasons many of the Jews failed to see Jesus as their king because he wasn't like any king they'd ever known or heard about ever. That's for sure. Okay, back to the book of Judges and Abimelech. So Gideon lived out the rest of his life and then died in peace. But things were definitely not copacetic in the promised land. As Judges 8.33 tells us, as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Barith their god. Gideon's syncretistic life was not a good example for the Israelites, but perhaps his faith in God did have some impact on them while he was alive and still judged over them. Yeah, but once he died, though, the restraints were gone. I mean, they headed right back into paganism. Baal Barath means God of the covenant. Baal Barath was a pagan god who the Canaanites worshipped most likely for fertility, fertility for their wives, their livestock, and for their crops. The Israelites worshipped Baal Barath as part of a covenant that they entered, to, entered into with the Canaanites. The Israelites weren't the only ones Gideon set a bad example for. Remember, Gideon had 70 sons who would have all been ahead of Abimelech as heir. What does Abimelech do? Judges 9, 1 and 2 tells us. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, or if you remember as Gideon, went to Chechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ear of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbabel rule over you or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. So basically, Abimelech goes to his mom's family in Shechem, which was a city from the tribe of Manasseh, and he says to them, instead of having Gideon's 70 legitimate sons over you, help me plan a coup, and you'll have your own flesh and blood in charge. Up until now, God appointed those who led Israel. Here we see Abimelech appointing himself, and this probably won't come as a huge shock, but he didn't have any interest at all in delivering the people of Israel or leading them back to God. He only wanted to rule over them. That's right. Abimelech cheated to gain power over the people, and he enlisted a bunch of corrupt relatives to help him do it. 
He convinces his uncles on his mother's side to support him and help him become king over his brothers. So here for the first time, like you said, Chris, we see a judge inserting himself as leader. To make matters even worse, Abimelech uses money from the pagan temple to hire thugs to bring his kingship to fruition. Yeah, while God sometimes uses pagan or secular things for his purposes, we should never do that. As theologian Adam Clark said, a work begun under the name and influence of the devil is not likely to end in the glory of God or to the welfare of man. So how does Abimelech move up to lead over 70 brothers ahead of him? Well, Judges 9, 4 to 5 tells us how he did it. It says, and they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Bareth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house in Ophrah and killed his brothers, the son of Jerubbabel, 70 men on one stone. So the thugs Abimelech hired kill his brothers and his relatives crown him king. Ironically, the tree where Abimelech's coronation took place is the same tree where Joshua had solemnly placed a copy of the law of God. This was a sacred spot where Joshua made a covenant with the Lord on the people's behalf. The law was right there, but Israel refused to read it or heed it. While Abimelech set out to kill all 70 of his brothers, he didn't get them all. We're told that the youngest named Jotham got away and hid himself. And God had plans for Jotham. Jotham stands up and he tells the people a parable. He says, The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive trees, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which God and men are honored and go and hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go and hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you're anointing the king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not... Let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. By telling this parable, Jotham is trying to show the people of Shechem how ludicrous it was to pick Abimelech as their king. In this parable, the trees who go out to anoint a king are the people of Shechem. They first asked the worthy trees, the olive tree, the fig tree, and the vine. But the worthy trees didn't want to be king. People depended on them for sustenance and for their economy. They knew what their purpose was, and they were content to stick with doing what they were meant to do. But the unworthy thornbush agrees to be king. A thornbush isn't good for anything. It no. only grows about one or two feet high and produces, well, thorns. <laughs> so the thornbush's call to the tall trees to take refu refuge in its shade would have been obviously ridiculous to Jotham's listeners. Makes no sense. He's making a point, though, and he's illustrating that the bush has a much higher view of itself than it ever should have had. To further the point, the thorn bush even warns that he'll destroy any of the people that disagree with him. Guess who Abimelech is in the parable? I'll give you one guess. Ah, uh, thorn bush? Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> David Guzik says this. One test of the character of a man is to see how he treats those who disagree with him. 
if his only desire is to destroy those who disagree, then he's much like the bramble. Plenty of good points, but no real substance for good. There's tons of verses in scripture that show the danger of anger and how God's people should handle it. James 1, 19 to 20, for example, says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Yeah, and Proverbs 14, 15 to 17 says, The simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thoughts to his steps. One who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. A man of quick temper acts foolishly, and a man of evil devices is hated. Jotham tells the men of Shechem, if they had treated Gideon's family honorable and fairly crowned Abimelech king, then they would find blessing. But if they haven't, and obviously they haven't, then he warns them that their recklessness and unwise choice is going to come back and burn them. Right. There are always spiritual and natural consequences to our sin. And here we see Jotham warning the people of just that. The spiritual consequences will be that their sin will be their own undoing. The natural consequence will be that they've made a loose cannon like Abimelech their king, and he will be just as harsh with them as he was with his own family. And we know he killed them. That's right. And this proves to be the case. As God sometimes does, he defeats the enemies of his people by having them turn on each other and destroy each other. We just saw this. We saw it with the defeat of the whore of Babylon in Revelation. And like I said, we just saw it with Gideon and the Midianites. And here with Abimelech, we're going to see it again. It doesn't take much to get the wicked to turn on each other. After <laughs> all, they're wicked and that's their nature. They don't trust anyone else. And they're always looking out for their own interests, even at the expense of others. And there's nothing new under the sun. That's right. Why so is that, it, Chris? Yeah, because their hearts have not been regenerated and they do not have the restraining hand of the Holy Spirit on them. They are left totally to their own sinfulness. And sometimes God uses that sinfulness for his purposes. After three years of Abimelech's rule, we're told in Judges 9, verse 23, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. Hmm. So the people of Shechem, the very people who put Abimelech on the throne, decide it's now in their best interest to get rid of Abimelech. Yes, God intervened and sent an evil spirit to prompt their actions. And we may think that seems unfair of God, but God is God. He can deal with people any way he chooses. Absolutely. He's the almighty creator and we're made from dirt. Right. You know, he's not forcing anyone to sin here. He doesn't ever have to force us to sin. The people of Shechem jump at the chance to get rid of Abimelech. Well, I mean, you can't really blame them. The same guys who helped Abimelech carry out the murders of his brother to make him king are now defying him and trying to hurt him financially because that's what's in their best interest now. Go figure. Chris, I want to note something here. There's Christians who are dualists. This means they believe Satan's responsible for evil and God is responsible for good and never do the two intersect. Mm. And while it's true that there's nothing good in Satan, it's not true that God is not sovereign over evil. God's never responsible for evil, but he uses it for his purpose and he is sovereign over it. This narrative is a perfect example of this. God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the people of Shechem. He did this to punish both Abimelech and Shechem 
And he also did it to fulfill his will. Yeah, I mean, there are some important truths that we need to see at work here. First, God is completely sovereign over Satan and evil. They can do nothing without his say-so. Nobody can. Second, God will sometimes use sin and evil to further his purposes. Third, as a rule, God does not have to make people sin and do evil. Leaving them to their own devices is usually all that's needed. That's exactly right. And we should remind everyone that while God's redeemed people can be messed with by Satan and evil spirits, they can't be possessed by them. Right. Okay. Let's finish up with Abimelech. So the people of Shechem look for a new leader. And it's a guy named Gaul who dissed Abimelech and said he could defeat him and he would be a much better leader to the people. They were so convinced that Gaul could protect them from Abimelech that they started throwing drunken parties and openly cursing Abimelech. But they're in for a rude awakening. Judges 9 verses 32 to 33 tells us that the city leader named Zebul overheard the planned coup and tells Abimelech. Now, therefore, go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise up early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. So with the help of Zebul, Abimelech defeats Gaul, and after some more fighting and killing, he has Shechem under his control again. But that's not enough for him. He wants blood. This is another common trait of the wicked. They don't just want revenge on what they perceive to be a wrong done to them. They want the offending party to pay and pay dearly. They want to destroy anyone who opposes them. Yeah, they do. Hmm. So first... Abimelech kills all the people who were in the city, and then he sows the ground with salt. This city he destroys is where Abraham had worshipped and where Joshua and all his people presented themselves to God. It was also the city allotted to the priests from the land of the tribe of Ephraim as a sanctuary city. Now, thanks to Abimelech, it's a wasteland. The salt makes it so that nothing can grow there. Abimelech's a man that came to power through violence, and now he's turned that violence toward the people who once supported him. And there's another trait of the wicked. Yeah. <laughs> the Shechemites try to take refuge in the temple of their god, Baal. And here we see God's words coming to pass. Jotham, the youngest brother who had escaped being killed, prophesied about this very event. He said in Judges 9.20, but if not, meaning if you didn't fairly make Abimelech king, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo and let fire come out of the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And what happens? Judges 9 verse 48 tells us, it says, and Abimelech took an ax in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, what you've seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and following Abimelech put it against the stronghold and they set the stronghold on fire over them so that all the people in the tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. And it doesn't stop there. After the first tower massacre, he's ready for another. Abimelech goes to Thebes to repeat the act. This time, though, a pretty resourceful woman drops yep. a millstone on his head from out of the window. A millstone would have been about 12 to 14 inches long and probably weighed about five pounds or more, but she's throwing it from high up and it cracks his skull. Abimelech knows he's about to die. So what does he do? 
Scripture says he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed me. And his young man thrust him through and he died. <laughs> yeah. Abimelech considered it more honor honorable to be killed by his own armor bearer than to be killed by a woman. Big difference it made. He's still <laughs> dead afterwards. He shows his sin of pride even in his death. And he, he caused that, that person to sin by killing him. That's right. Uh, God warned the men of Shechem through Jotham's prophecy. And they rejected the Lord's word and they brought themselves to ruin. And then the book of Judges moves on to chapter 10. And there's two judges, Tola and Jair, who get a very brief mention. The lack of detail of Tola and Jair's reign could be because their stories are similar to another judge that's already been recounted in detail. But Matthew Henry has a different take. He says this about Tola and Jair. Quiet and peaceable reigns, though the best to live in, yield least variety of matter to be spoken of. Such were the days of Tola and Jair. They were humble, active, and useful men, rulers appointed of God. I want to end with pointing out the incredible blessing that we have in Scripture. We're privileged to the information that people involved in the events of the Bible did not have. While Gideon's sons were being killed or when things went so bad between Abimelech and the people of Shechem that Abimelech began killing and burning some of them alive, some people probably wondered what God was doing. I mean, don't we often hear people today asking, where was God when this happened? Or why is God doing this? Or why is he letting this happen? Through narratives like this one, we can be assured that God is always present and active. Throughout the narrative we looked at today, he was at work. He was judging those who were not his people and refining those who were his people. Obviously, Abimelech and the people of Shechem couldn't see the evil spirit God sent, and they had no idea what God was doing behind the scenes. And neither do we have any idea what God is doing behind the scenes right now as we speak. Right. We should never presume to know the mind of God. God may or may not be causing things to happen to people or places as a means of judgment, as a test for his people, or as a way to refine his people even. However, it's not for us to make the distinction. Through the life of Abimelech, we can see that God sometimes puts wicked people in charge of his people. We've seen it through history. But take heart, friends, the very nature of the wicked will become their downfall. And most important, God is sovereign over it all, and he uses it for his purposes and for his glory. Amen to that, too. Perhaps through experiencing what happened in Judges 9, some of the Israelites' faith was refined, and they came back to faith in God alone. Maybe that's why Tola and Jair's reign were uneventful. The important point to get is that for those who have been called by God and are trusting in Jesus, God is no longer judging us. And while he may send trials in our lives, you can probably guarantee he's going to send trials in your lives. Yeah. He yeah. might put us under harsh, corrupt leaders or even give us over to our sin so that we fall on our face. He's not doing it out of judgment, but out of love. He's refining us. He's refining our faith and our spiritual maturation. And while it may not always be pleasant, and we know it's not pleasant, right? we can take heart that he's sovereign over it all and that he is firmly in control of it all. Amen to that. Thanks for listening. Be sure to stay tuned for release information and the cover reveal of our new book, The Bible Blueprint, A Guide to Better Understanding the Bible from Genesis to Revelation.
And if you like what you hear on our podcast, please subscribe to our Proverbs 910 ministry channel on Rumble or YouTube. You can also subscribe to the audio podcast on whatever platform you listen on, so you'll never miss an episode. We would greatly appreciate you rating and reviewing us on whatever platform you are tuning in on, and consider following us on MeWe, Facebook, or Instagram to get all the latest happenings of Proverbs 910 ministries, including daily posts, book news, Bible studies, speaking engagements, and more. Have a blessed day, everybody.